0: Hey guys, welcome to the Well Said Podcast. My name is Andre and I'm a pastoral intern at Living Word Bible Church, where I'm responsible for youth and young adult ministries. I'm also a part-time student at the Southern Seminary. Every week, I'll be sitting down with my good friend, Alexi, and we are gonna be talking about both the beauty and the complexity of following Jesus in a post-Christian culture. And welcome back to another sunny week here in the Pacific Northwest. That sunny piece is a very important detail and something that we are very happy about around here because that's not always our fortune. So I'm enjoying the sun. How about you?
1: That's true. I think the summer, it feels like the summer just started. Yeah. Yeah. Mid-July
0: is when summer hits Ridiculous. around here. <laughs>
1: yeah. And we get about two weeks of it. <laughs> yeah. About two weeks, halfway through Halfway through. August, it pretty much leaves. Yeah. So don't ever, ever complain
0: about the heat around here, guys. We get a little bit. You got to soak it in. But, you know, I'm a unique guy. I love heat. I I like, I mean, of course, I don't like when my house is stuffy and you can't breathe at night or something. But like when I'm going, when I'm traveling in desert type areas, like if you've ever taken a road trip to Utah and it's like 110 degrees, high desert, dry heat. I, I love that. I don't know. I'm weird that way. Or when in Mexico or in the Caribbean or something, Florida, when it's
1: really hot and that heat, I love that. I I really enjoy it. I just, I enjoy it. No, not for me. Not for me. I need my mild 75 degrees on a hammock in the shade. Yeah. That's what I need. You're a mild guy. (laughs)
0: Yeah. You're in the right place then because Bellingham is pretty mild. Spokane, not so much, right? Because you guys... Highs and lows. Yeah. Spokane is like 100 degrees, 110, and then like down into like the negatives. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I um, we went and did a road trip with the guys a few years, I think a couple of years before I got married, which I was just talking to my wife yesterday. One thing I would do differently about my single life if I would go back, not that I want to go back. My life is so much better now than it was. But one thing to do more of is to really take advantage of that freedom. Go on more trips, go on more road trips, go camping and hiking more because you can just up and go. You can't do that when you're a family man.
1: Yeah, overnight hiking is one of my largest regrets. Yeah, yeah. have done a lot more, a lot more. Yeah, we did some hiking in
0: in a place called Moab, and it's surrounded by two national parks, Arches National Park and Canyonlands National Park. And we were hiking in Arches with some guys, and it was like 115 midday, and it was so awesome. I mean, there's a certain point at which your body seems to kind of normalized to the temperature and you just, I mean, we spent a good five hours out there just hiking, climbing the rocks. It was great. I want to go back. That does sound like fun. Yeah. So this week, mm. um, enough about outdoors. We are diving right back into the conversation that we had last week. Complicated stuff, deep stuff. We, we know it's complicated guys. We had, we got some feedback last week on some things we said that it was a little hard to follow, a little dense yes, it's dense. Sometimes it's good to be stretched. Sometimes it's good to listen to stuff that you're like, I'm barely tracking. I'm holding on. But that's good where you're you're stretching your boundaries. So that's good. I think the key thing is if you're hearing something that we're saying and it doesn't quite make sense, send us a message, send us some feedback, send in a question, let us know what you think.
1: Or just hit that 15 second rewind button and listen to it again. <laughs> that too, that too.
0: Um, So we're diving right back into this whole topic of Reformed theology versus Arminian theology, more specifically, God's sovereign control over life and our free will, our decisions, how does that matter? These are complicated, but they're also very practical questions. So before we dive back into some more specific considerations, I wanted to kind of loop around and take a wide-angle view of the whole question of Reformed theology. Some people are like, wait, what? What is Reformed theology? Um, so when you're looking back in church history, coming out of the 1400s, coming out of the dark ages, um, the, you know, 11, 1200s, 1300s, the dark ages in Europe, the church is most, is, is all, it's all one church, the Catholic church centered in Rome. And by the 14, 1500s, you have significant problems in the church, moral problems, theological problems, corruption, government power, a lot of problems. In response to this, you have men rising up within the church who are seeing these problems, who are reacting. And their goal is to correct the church. That's why it's called the Reformation. They did not want to break away. They wanted to reform. They wanted to fix the problem. You have people like Martin Luther, John Calvin, um, Huss, uh, Zwingli, all these names of men who are trying to correct the oppressions that they saw in the church, the wrong things that they were seeing. And they were trying to fix the incorrect theology. There was a lot of wrong teaching that was going on that was basically trying to extort money out of people for salvation security. So the reformers, what's important to understand about the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin are two main guys that most people know about. Um, and this is not the Martin Luther that said that "I am a dream I have a dream" speech. Different Martin Luther. Actually the black guy was named after the German guy Martin Luther. Um The German Martin Luther came a few hundred years before the black Martin Luther, and the goal of the German Martin Luther and the French John Calvin was not to bring new ideas into the church. They considered themselves to simply be returning back to the ancient, well-worn patterns of thinking within the church that came before all the corruption. So they were returning back to guys like St. Augustine and Um, the early church fathers, they were going back to the early councils of the church, Nicaea, Chalcedon, all those things. You may not know those names. They're still important to know. The the idea is the reformers weren't bringing anything new. They were going back to the ancient, old, well-defended biblical ideas. Mostly, they were trying to bring the Bible as the main authority. They were saying, you can't just have popes sitting on a big stool telling people what to believe. The popes must answer to the Bible. The Bible is the main authority. So, when they're working to, to make these changes, one of the big areas their changes that they're working changes in is in questions of God, his sovereignty, his control over the world, the sinfulness of human beings, the deep depravity and need for salvation, and how it is that God saves us. The Catholic Church was mostly man-centered in its theology. So, It was mostly like a formula where God did this, God died for you on the cross. Now, if you just come to the church, pray these prayers, and pay this money, you'll be saved. So they saw salvation as a a, a theological word that you may hear is synergism, or a working together, that, that God and man work together to get man saved. Um, whereas the Reformers emphasized a more God-centered theology that said that's not quite what the Bible teaches about God's nature. The the Bible is full of references to the fact that God controls all things and that we are actually so sinful that we don't even want to come to God. In our very nature, sin has penetrated to the very core of our hearts. Um, So the Reformers emphasized this view. Once the reformation took way took hold and it, it created a whole giant new movement within the church which we now called call protestantism what is a protestant if you are not a catholic today and if you are not an eastern orthodox person if you don't believe if you're not part of the eastern orthodox church or you're not part of the catholic church you are by default a protestant protestant is everybody in the umbrella who went to stand against, to protest against the things that were happening in the Roman Catholic Church back in the 1500s. That is the giant, giant umbrella of Protestantism. And under that umbrella, you have a wide, wide variety of beliefs, ideas, movements. Now, later downstream, as John Calvin is hammering out Reformation theology, which he, John Calvin is known massively for The fact that he, Luther is the guy who kind of broke the old building down. Calvin is the one who sculpted the new one, in a sense. Calvin is the guy who is the the theologian uh, who started to weave together the ideas. Okay, if the Bible is our only authority, if God is Lord over all creation, if we are sinners totally lost by nature then how does all this work together? So he's the guy who was the more careful thinker. He is the guy who wrote a massive book called Institutes of the Christian Religion, which is considered to be the first uh, complete systematic theology. And by the way, it wasn't written for other theologians. It was written for the king of France. It was written for a guy who doesn't do theology at all. It was meant to be read by people. Calvin's idea was to teach regular people Theology, understanding, deep understanding of what the Bible teaches. Anyways, in reaction to Calvin, you have a movement later um, by a guy named Jacobus Arminius, which we now call Arminianism. So Arminian theology comes later under the umbrella of Protestantism as Luther and Calvin have hammered the way forward. Arminius comes later and says, wait, wait, wait. What about human freedom? What about human will? This whole sovereignty of God thing doesn't quite line up with um, the fact that human beings have free will. So theologically and philosophically, Arminius took us back to a theology that's, that's a, a lot more similar to the Catholic theology that was rejected. Um, and, and because Catholic theology was a lot more man-centered... Um,
1: in its salvation orientation. You mean, but we're strictly speaking on the... On the question uh, of salvation. Not on
0: the question of the church or the authority or the pope. None of those things. Because
1: pretty much that's the only difference that's between Calvinism and Arminianism is that question of salvation part. Yeah. How exactly does it happen?
0: Right, right. So when you talk about Calvinists and Arminians, like I don't like to use these labels because they're so overused and beat to death. Yeah. There's so many different kinds of... Calvinists. There's so many crazy people who say crazy things in the name of Calvin, which he never said. There's a lot of crazy people who say crazy things in the name of Arminianism and Arminius, things that he never said. So I don't like to use those labels. I like to focus around the actual question in mind, specifically the sovereignty of God and its scope and the nature of free will. And that's kind of what we said last time. Basically, Calvinism or Reformed theology overall historically emphasizes that God's control spreads sovereignly to every aspect of creation. So you have texts like Ephesians 1.11, he who works all things according to the purpose of his will. Or you have uh, texts like Isaiah 45.46 where God says, my purpose will stand. Um, you have Proverbs, where it says the king purposes, but it is the Lord who establishes. Or Proverbs 19 or 20 that says that the heart of the king is like a, a, a river in the, the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. So you have all these pictures of like, what does it mean to be the creator? The Bible says that he is the creator. It means he, he is in charge of everything and that even the molecules and the atoms are under his obedience. And that includes the molecules and atoms in your brain when you're deciding to rebel against him. That's the big mystery. That's the cringing moment. How is it that he is in control of all things and yet he calls sinners to repentance? Um, that's the mystery. Mm-hmm. And yet, so, so that's, that's the reform perspective. The, Ar- the Arminian perspective is, well, the answer is simple. God asks you to repent because he doesn't force you to because he doesn't control your will, that your will is self-causing. Your will is self-determining. There's nothing outside of your will that causes you to, to, to make decisions. Your decisions come from your will. And then if you dig deeper and say, well, where does the will get those decisions? That's a black hole. You don't really know. It's like a philosophical, a dead end. But Armenianism says, no, we decide. God does not intervene. God calls us to repentance but God cannot intervene in our decisions. So, the two positions. And honestly, when you have people who are uh, biblically rooted on both sides of this argument, very often they're biblically sound Christians. I want to make that clear to me. Like, I don't have any personal problems with people who have Armenian theological inclinations. I I don't think you're dumb if you believe that or this. I... I don't have any fights with people that I, I don't fight over this subject. I'm just trying to take the questions and as clearly as possible, analyze the data, the biblical data, and come to the conclusions, you know.
1: Yeah, and I, th- and I would like to agree with this, that we're not, please don't start any fights with people, you know. That, that's not the purpose of this yeah. question. This uh, The reason why we're doing these podcasts is because we want to bring these questions to light. They're not discussed often, but they are very interesting because they really describe the essence of who we are. Kind right. of wh- why why do we do what we do and what happens? Right. But uh, coming back slightly to the distinction between uh, one as uh, one theology versus another, uh, let's bring in two people. I'm going to bring in two people and explain to me how does it work because logically. Calvinist perspective doesn't make sense. And tell me where it makes sense. For example, let's say you talked about the bad things. Let's say Hitler.
0: Let's not use Calvinist. Let's say Reformed. Let's,
1: <laughs> let's use
0: Reformed. I just don't. It's a toxic word <laughs> in my circles, and I don't
1: ascribe to it. All right. Let's bring it. Reformed. Uh, let's say Hitler. It's it, sad. We know the history. We know what happened. How can we possibly say that God... Caused. Caused. In a way, made made him do that, forced right. him, caused him, right? Because essentially, that's where Reformed theology sits, right? How can that be possible if God causes him, and most likely he is going to be in hell? I mean, I can't say most that, likely, you know what I mean? So, if the, and if which you know. br- which will eventually bring us to the question of how can he possibly possibly be responsible?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, here you're dealing with complicated philosophical theological categories and the kind of words that you use to label are very important so uh you cannot uh, like a any uh, a a classic reformed theologian would never say that god forced him to do that um would could could we use the word cause even that is like did god cause hitler to do what he did um people theologians are going to be uncomfortable with that word. Um, Even though at the end of the day, cause is really what what you mean, if you mean it correctly. So the Reformed theological perspective is freedom, human freedom is the freedom to do what you want. To do what you want. So God never coerces, God never forces anyone to do anything. Now, the deep question, the mysterious question is, Where does the want come from? Our daily decisions, look at your daily decisions. Where do your wants and your desires and your inclinations, where do they come from? And that's a pretty complicated little package there. Where do my desires come from? Well, there's a lot of things. My sinful heart, my sinful habits. You know, connected to that, um, the broken world that I live in, uh, the image of God that I'm shaped by, so there's still goodness in me, there's still good things in me, even though I am fallen creature, um, the broken world, but also the good world around me, there's still goodness in the world, um, spiritual forces at work around me that I'm not aware of, God himself who is sovereignly orchestrating history. So you've got many, many layers of cause to our will, There's many, many layers that feed into this mysterious thing of the will. But at the end of the day, when you are driving down the street and you're trying to decide between Starbucks or Woods Coffee, where does that decision come from? This is deep stuff because you really think about it long enough, you just really get tangled up. It's hard to say where do our wants come from. Now, the biblical explanation of Hitler would be Not that God uh, forced him. Um, It would be more accurate to say that because of the sinful state of this person's life, because of the choices that he makes to rebel against God, God permits him to act on his sinful inclinations. And those sinful inclinations, they're not arising from God. They're arising from Hitler's own Mm -hmm. sinful heart. God permitted the heart to exist. God, even you can say, permitted all the circumstances around Hitler, how he grew up, and all the different teachers he had, and all the ideas that were swirling in his brain to be, right? So, at the end of the day, God is the author of history, and terrible things happen, and God has permitted evil to exist. Now, the Bible is very clear. God does not author evil. God does not author terrible things that happen those things come um from now the bible is very clear god is not the author of evil he is not the direct cause of bad things that happen now we're getting into the problem of evil which is another whole question um and yet God is in control of the whole universe. Every detail that happens, happens according to his will.
1: That's where I was about to get to. Doesn't that contradict right. itself? Right,
0: right. You're in attention. So, I would argue that nobody escapes that tension, though. The Arminian says, oh, easy. Hitler rebelled against God because God gave him free will, and God never mm-hmm. intervened in Hitler's will. God let Hitler choose. Um it's like God is calling from the balcony down to the sinners below and says, come on up to me, please, but I'm not going to make you. You come if you want. And the sinner gets to choose whether he wants to come or not. And that choice comes from the sinner, from the human, not from God, right? Mm-hmm. That's easy answer. Well, not so easy because God knows the future, right? So if God knows the future and he knows that Hitler is not going to come, why is God calling come? You know, so is that, I mean, it's it's the same exact problem. If if God knew the future and God knew everything that was going to happen and somebody like Hitler was going to arise because all of the thousands of millions of different choices that went into that and all the different people and ideas mm-hmm. and philosophies that shaped him to be what he was, God knew all that, God saw all that, but he let it happen. So the Arminian theologian or the, Arminian, the person who holds to a free will, Arminian free will, still has a problem at the end of the day. God saw the future. God let it happen. God could have changed it, but he didn't.
1: Mm -hmm. Why not? So technically, at the end of the day, we're arriving at the conclusion that even instances like Hitler took place because... It was according to his will. It was permitted
0: by the will of God, right? I I would use very careful
1: language there. But why can't we apply the language of that it was according to his will? Because everything is according to his will, like we stated before.
0: Yeah, I mean, here you're getting into another little category where theologians try to be more specific by saying there is immediate and immediate cause. So God is causing something. God has a variety of ways that he causes something, right? So sometimes God sends lightning from heaven, and boom, something happened. You know, God direct cause miracles, right? But then you also see that the Bible says that God caused something, but then you see that it is a person who decided to go do it and decided to go do that and that and that, and that's how it came about. So God works through people. God works through circumstances. And so... The mystery is the connecting point. How is it that God's in control? How is it that God is working through situations and permitting people like Hitler to exist? And Hitler is his own man, responsible, and yet God is totally sovereign. That connecting point of that mystery of the two different sources of cause, that's the mystery. So in the Reformed theology, the mystery is... How is it that God is in control of all things, and yet he permits sinners to make choices that are their own? Mm -hmm. That's the mystery. That how is it that God controls all things?
1: Because both statements are absolute truth. Right. The
0: Arminian mystery is, how is it that we have this free will that we just self-choose, that we self-determine, that it comes from nowhere, it's just us and us alone? So, you have mystery no yeah. matter where you turn your head. The key is, are you, you, are you taking your cues from human rationality, what makes sense from a human perspective, or are you taking your cues from biblical language and trying to craft your explanation based on biblical language?
1: Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it as we, as probably our listeners have noticed, this subject matter is a lot more complex and there's a lot more depth to it than can possibly be covered on podcast. And I'm sure the amount of papers and books that was written on it is also just enormous. Mm-hmm. Uh, on another hand, coming back to, let's say, a guy like Abraham, we all know the story. Mm-hmm. And then when we go to uh, Hebrews chapter 11, I believe, says that abraham believed god Mm -hmm. it doesn't say god made him believe so who believed abraham abraham Mm -hmm. how did he believe did he choose to believe i'm assuming Armenian perspective would say abraham saw the city that god showed him and abraham chose to believe in god right but what would perspective of reformed theology say
0: right so both would say abraham chose to believe the question is where did the power to believe come
1: from mm-hmm. the saving the
0: arminian had to has to say the power the the capacity the ability to believe came from abraham it was abraham who mustered up the will to believe the will came from abraham mm-hmm. the reform perspective would say well yes abraham believed And faith is the whole hinge point of all human salvation and relationship to God. The whole gospel hinges on faith. Okay, so where does faith come from? Well, and again, the reform perspective would say, well, that's pretty easy too, though, because Ephesians chapter 2 says, by grace you are saved through faith, and this not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. So in that text, in Ephesians chapter 2, when Paul says this is a gift And it's not of yourselves. He's referring to the faith itself. So it's the faith that is working in us that God produces, that works. So you have, I think, a picture of God here that God is working on multiple levels. God is calling sinners to repent because God is in genuine relationship with his creatures and yet he is not just merely a creature he is not merely one of us he is god he is above the whole thing he has chosen to be in contact with us he has chosen to be in covenant with us he has made us this way that's a miracle mm-hmm. but at the same time he is god he is above all things he is he is running the show on the background level you know what i'm saying so the classic the classic armenian argument or question, or not even Armenian, but logical question. Okay, well, if God God knew that we can't obey, why is he calling us to obey? It must mean that we can't obey, right? Like the logical conclusion is that we can Mm -hmm. obey. But again, when you survey the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the law of Moses to the people of Israel, the point of the law was not to say, hey, here's a nice little religious ladder that you can climb and become a better person. You can be holy like me if you just follow these 10 easy steps. Maybe not easy, but if you follow these steps, you will be holy. And in a sense, that's what the whole book of the whole Mosaic Covenant is picked, is is on this whole is structured on this whole premise. If you obey, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. So, doesn't that mean that they can obey? That's, that's the Armenian argument, the, the human logical argument. Yeah, doesn't that mean that they can obey? The whole premise here is that they can obey. Well, Moses himself, as he is done delivering this speech, is telling to the people of Israel, you will not obey. You are hard-hearted people. You are dead in sin. Your hearts are blind. You think you can obey. You think you can be good with your own strength. You cannot. You need mercy. You need grace. God needs to change your hearts. So why did God give the law? In a sense, because he's in true relationship. In another sense, because he's trying to show us that we can't obey, that we need him, that we need him on every level. That unless he goes inside and turns a light on, that he gives us a new heart, we will never listen to him.
1: One of the things that I wanted to bring it back to as we were ending... So what is the difference between then the Old Testament and the New Testament? Because in Old Testament they had the commandments and in the New Testament, we also have in all of the writings from the Paul, from James, from other writers, we have the writings that call us to sanctify ourselves, to do A's, Bs and C's, to grow and what is the difference? Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. It, it we have the choice in the in a, in essence, we have the choice in both cases. Right. What is it that we have, and how can we define it in a short and concise right. way?
0: Perfect. So the whole problem with the Old Testament is that God sought to be the—God created us to be our God, to be the object of our worship, and to live in in, in fellowship with us. And the whole pu- purpose of the Old Testament was to show, look, here is the structure of life between God and his people. If This is how we live. This is how we must live. The whole point is, however, that we cannot obey because our heart is crooked. Our heart is perverse at its core. That, as Paul says in Ephesians two and Romans chapter three, that we are dead, that we are broken, that we are, that we are non-functional when it comes to the truth of God and God's work and God's word. So the whole promise of the old testament is twofold look if i want to be your god and i want you to be my people and here is the way of my people this is how you must live and yet the second profound narrative in the whole the whole story there is uh that you can't do it this whole thing this whole plan that god has outlined for the life of his people with himself you can't do it you just you're just broken um and that's why you need a new covenant. That's the whole point that Jesus needs to come and create the reality of the temple in your heart and that you can't do that without spiritual surgery. That he can't, doesn't matter how many miracles God does, doesn't matter how many times he speaks to you from the mountain, opens the Red Sea, feeds you from the desert, does miracles, doesn't matter how many times he does it, you will still turn and sin. And so Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. God says, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers the day when I took them from the land to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. And no longer will each one tell his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So, God must give us a new heart. He must write the law on our heart. He must fix the core broken problem. And out of that springs new life. So, the New Testament is full of commands, but we obey them in new life. So we are not trying to obey in order to get God's good pleasure. You're not, it's not a religious system where if you please God, he will bless you back. Different now. Now God says, if you believe in Jesus, follow me. That's it. You're my child. I love you. I died for you. You're free. I've forgiven your sin. Now live as my child. He gives us a new heart, a new way, and the commandments are a joy because we're new. We are made new. And we are not trying to prove ourselves because he has already proven himself. We are not trying to gain anything because in Christ we've already gained everything. There's nothing more God can give us. We have it all. Now live. So now the law of the Old Testament takes on a new light. It's a way for us. It's a way of wisdom. It's, it's, it's instruction for God's people, you know? Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes sense. So, you know, wrapping it up, I think, whether what depends, doesn't matter what you believe uh, in terms of categories or theological phrases, we have to take our cues from the Bible. And when we talk about our significance, do I matter to God? Um, When we talk about our work, does my work matter to God? My obedience, my prayer life, does that change anything if God's already in control? The biblical answer is yes, it changes everything. Not only because, it's not because, the biblical answer is yes, your work changes everything. Not because you have the power to do free will apart from God, but because it is through your new transformed life that he is working eternal change. He is working his sovereign plan through your prayers, through your labors, through your obedience, through your love for him. So that lands us on this dense couple of week conversation. I'm sure there's more questions. Um, Send them in. Let us know what you think. Uh, Share it if you found it helpful. Share this episode. Uh, Leave a review on iTunes. Find us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're all there. Find us. Share it. Um, And we will talk to you next week.